Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 194 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today we have two wonderful guests that I'm so excited to tell you about, um, but I just wanted to take a minute, and I just got back from the FLASHA, I love saying that FLASHA, it's the Florida <laughs> um, Speech Language Hearing Association State Conference, and it was an amazing conference. Um, I think what was most notable about that was that FLASHA, the board, is not using a management company, and they put on that entire conference by themselves after a pandemic um, and it could not have gone any seamlessly or smoothly or any wonderful adjective you want to add in there. So <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you to the Flash Board for having me. And it was it was an awesome time. So um, I just can't encourage those of you um, that are thinking of getting involved in your state organization to please do so. There is so much that this organization does. Um, obviously at the state level, but um, with helping to change policy and different things that are always coming up affecting our field, affecting how we get paid, affecting our patient services, um, and those things get changed uh, within these groups. So I want to encourage you guys all to join your state organization, um, and if you need an organization to follow or model, Florida is it. So, <laughs> um, but yes, it was it was so, so, so wonderful being back in person again at a conference. It was wonderful. And we are gearing up for our uh, Medical SLP Collective live event is coming up in September. It is a um, an event that I created two years ago. Um, basically, it is a complete roundtable event. So if you've ever wanted to just sit and pick the brains of your colleagues or mentors, that is what we do. So you're divided up into tables based on um, subject area or setting that you work in and just different case studies are presented really you know interesting complex cases maybe you would have handled it differently maybe somebody has a different suggestion so really just you know three whole days of just brainstorming together with your colleagues so um, it is for collective members only so if you're interested um, we are opening enrollment for the MSLP collective in a few weeks so stay tuned for that but um, just so excited to be back in person with everybody and just hug and squeeze my colleagues again. So, <laughs> um, and I also had, I, I was not expecting this, but I had two papers accepted for the, or two presentations accepted for the ASHA convention coming up in November, whereas I think Washington, D.C. Just, I'm just saying that on a whim without even looking, but um, I'm excited to present there as well. Again, I was not expecting that, so that'll be, that'll be lovely with my co-presenter, Vince Clark. So, 
um, excited to see everybody again. Hopefully make it through the, the rest of this pandemic. This is just, it's nuts. And those of you that are out there still working in it, in the thick of it, and it's coming back around, thoughts are with you. I, it's awful. So um, let's get on to <laughs> happier, happier times. So again, thank you so much to Kendria and Emma for this episode. Um, so our first guest is Dr. Kendria Garand. She is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Speech Pathology and Audiology in the College of Allied Health Professions at the University of South Alabama. She is the founder and principal investigator of the Swallowing Disorders Initiative, SDI Research Laboratory, serves as the program coordinator for the PhD in Communication Sciences and Disorders, and also holds an adjunct appointment with the Department of Neurology in the College of Medicine. She provides clinical supervision to graduate SLP students in the university's outpatient clinic. Her primary research interests include the impact of aging and motor neuron disease on swallowing function. Her work has been funded through the Veterans Affairs, uh, American Speech Language Hearing Foundation, and the University of South Alabama. You may find some of her contributions in the Dysphagia Journal, American Journal of Speech Language Pathology, and Annals of Odology, Rhinology, and Laryngology. She is currently editor of Perspectives for SIG13 and serves as vice chairperson for the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. She's passionate about spreading awareness for those with swallowing disorders, training future dysphagia clinicians as critical thinkers, and mentoring the next generation of clinical investigators to help improve the lives of those with dysphagia. And our other guest is Dr. Emma Wallace. She is an Irish speech-language pathologist and postdoctoral researcher based in Sydney, Australia. She completed her bachelor's degree at Trinity College Dublin in Dublin, Ireland. After working as an SLP in Ireland for a few years, Dr. Wallace moved across the world to Christchurch, New Zealand to complete her PhD with Professor Maggie Lee Huckabee and Dr. Phoebe McRae. Her PhD focused on enhancing methods of cough testing and developing a treatment to enhance upper airway sensation for patients with silent aspiration. Dr. Wallace completed a postdoc at Flinders University where she continued research on upper airway sensory motor control and upper airway disorders, including sleep apnea. Dr. Wallace is currently based at the University of Sydney where she continues to research dysphagia, cough, and upper airway disorders. She has affiliations with Flinders University and Neuroscience Research Australia. So. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Wallace and Dr. Grant for joining me for this episode, and I hope you guys all enjoy it. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good evening. Good morning. We're on opposite ends of the world here, but good evening, Kendria. Good morning, Emma. Um, we have a wonderful episode. I think we've been talking about doing this episode for however long now, but I'm so happy that we are able to finally record this. So 
Kendra, if you want to tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Kendra Garand. I'm an assistant professor at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. Um, and I also founded and um, am the principal investigator of the Swallowing Disorders Initiative Research Laboratory, where really the majority of our work has been focused on healthy aging and its impact on swallowing function, as well as how motor neuron disease, particularly ALS, impacts swallowing function and respiratory swallow cord nation. And more recently, really stemming from my current doctoral um, students' interest, this kind of emerging research line in obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. And that's really how I got to know Dr. Wallace, who is here with us tonight. So it's, it's, it's been an amazing journey and something we're very excited to talk with you about. Awesome. And Emma? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Dublin in Ireland, as you can probably tell from my accent. Um, I did my bachelor's in Trinity College and after kind of working as a clinician for a couple of years in a range of different settings, um, I took the plunge and moved across the world to New Zealand um, to undertake my PhD with Professor Michael E. Huckabee and Dr. Phoebe McRae. And my doctoral work really focused on upper airway sensation, um, understanding a little bit more about cough reflex testing, and really how to rehabilitate sensory laryngeal sensation for patients with silent aspiration. Um, and following this, I was offered a postdoc at the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health in South Australia, um, really based on my research in upper airway sensation. And this is, it was a sleep laboratory. Um, and it was really through exactly as Kendraya said, this research that um, kind of led me to cross paths with Kendraya around an interest in dysphagia in patients with obstructive sleep apnea and the overlap of those two disorders. Um, so I'm currently based in Sydney at the University of Sydney, um, where I have a teaching and um, research role. Awesome. Well, so, so wonderful to meet you, Emma. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, Emma, you want to kick us off with just, why don't we start at the beginning and just talk about what is OSA, at least in adults, we're going to focus on adults because that's our specialty. We have a height requirement on the patients that we see. And so, yeah, Emma, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, myself and Kendraya have this interest in obstructive sleep apnea or OSA um, and its relationship with dysphagia. So um, I suppose to start off, obstructive sleep apnea is a sleep-related breathing disorder. Um, and as Kendraya said, we're talking about OSA in the context of adults here, or our focus is in OSA in the context of adults. It also occurs in children, um, you know, and the pathophysiology of OSA in adults and children is slightly different. Um, so our focus is really on adults. Um, as I said, it's a sleep-related breathing disorder. And research suggests that it affects about 1 billion adults worldwide. Um, it's characterized by repeated narrowing or closure of the upper airway during sleep. Um, and, you know, in severe cases, this can happen up to 100 times per hour. Um, so, you know, the, the upper airway is getting a huge amount of trauma throughout the night. Yeah, that, that's kind of a, a brief, I suppose, summary of, of what OSA is. Um, and I think it's really important to maybe to note that, you know, our understanding or 
you know, the understanding of OSA in general is still in its infancy. There's a lot that we don't know about the disorder um, and there's a lot we don't know about how to treat the disorder. The current go-to treatment um, is continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. Um, and this CPAP really works to splint the airway open. So it's really blowing airway in, air into the airway to kind of just splint it open or keep it open throughout the night. So it's not a rehabilitative treatment. It really just works as a, a compensation so that the airway isn't narrowing or collapsing. Um, I think also more recently, there's been a kind of greater understanding of OSA affects women as well as men. Historically, it's been seen as a disease that only affects men, but there is quite a high prevalence of women with OSA as well. So I think you know, that's becoming more acknowledged and more understood. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to talk about some of those risk factors. You know, when we think about OSA and kids, we're like, oh, they have big tonsils, they have big adenoids, get those out and they'll be okay. And that can be occurring in the adulthood as well. So, um, you know, they may remove structures that's contributing to that airway obstruction, um, like the tonsillectomy and adenectomy. Um, But the... I think that speaks, though, with this rising um, understanding that there's this increase in females being recognized as having OSA, when traditionally it was like, oh, yes, you know, males, way more common in males, et cetera. And then trying to link that, okay, but why is it females? You know, is there something have to do with hormones, postmenopausal, premenopausal, um, and thinking about those other kind of risk factors that are associated. So a larger BMI, you know, those anatomical differences. So patients that are just born with a narrower airway compared to others, you know, so genetics is going to play a role in that, you know, age as well. So, you know, middle age and older um, is where we kind of see those kind of higher rates occurring. But I think that speaks to the more we better understand the contributing factors to OSA and that it's not just as simple as like oh they they're you know they have this narrow airway and that's why you know it's collapsing the better we're going to be able to target that treatment and then also understand how that can influence then swallowing physiology which is where I think our interest comes in is really understanding um, how swallowing is actually impacted because I don't think we know that yet in the literature. I think there are articles that discuss it and my doc student did a a nice systematic review kind of exploring that of like, what do we know? But the problem is there's, there's limitations within those studies that are currently available that I feel we have a great road ahead of us to try to address some of those limitations so we can better understanding the underlying impairments that are present in OSA and that way we can better target our treatments. Kind of along the same lines as as we better understand what OSA is from a pathophysiological standpoint. Have you guys been able to, you said there isn't much in the literature about OSA and dysphagia together, is that correct? When we were looking at it, there was, oh, 23 stacks. I can't, oh, I okay. have this up. Well, that's more than like two. Oh, 17 studies. It was 17 <laughs> oh, studies, 17 studies that were included in the, in the systematic review. But just, just so you, I think the nice thing that this highlighted, one of the biggest take-home messages in that abstract is that the dysphagia prevalence, though, ranged from 16% to 78%. That's pretty wide. (laughs) 
you know? And, and so, and what we had to start thinking about is why is that so hard? Why is there this huge variability amongst these studies? Well, one is how they're defining dysphagia, right? You know, is it just depending on the scale that they use? So then we looked at, okay, well, what are the measures they were doing in order to define dysphagia? Well, only one study out of those 17 actually used a validated scale, like the penetration aspiration scale. Okay. And other ones were just kind of defining their own understanding. So if the bolus was in the pure forms when it was when the swallow onset occurred, then that's what they label it as is dysphagia. Well, then we had to think about, but wait a minute, we also have shown my lab as well as others that that incurs in healthy adults as well. And they were like, oh man, wait, now I might be facing the clinical conundrum because I know in our healthy study that had almost 200 participants where we did demonstrate that there is variability in where swallow onset occurred. And we definitely weren't the first lab to do that. But we didn't specifically exclude patients with OSA. We didn't think to ask about that. You know, we were worried about no head and neck cancer, no neck surgery, et cetera. And so we're like, oh, how many other healthy investigations did also not consider that OSA may have influenced what we're seeing in quote unquote helping aging? Or is it the fact that those studies were then counting people as impaired when they were actually just demonstrating with a typical variation? The other thing we had to think about is, well, what were they using to actually assess swallowing? Well, some only used a patient-reported outcome measure, you know, an 810 reflex symptom index, and then a few actually used instrumental swallowing assessment. So, you know, your fees and your MBS. So, thinking about those things and then wondering, okay, so what can we do next? And how can we get a better understanding of what those swallowing impairments were? Because when you looked across the literature, some of the most common things were that delayed initiation of pharyngeal swallow or premature, you know, bolus spillage. Although, again, I think that has different underlying, underlying impairments there to target, but um, kind of clumped together. Pharyngeal residue. And then you want to think about, okay, well, why is that? Where is it? And what's contributing to it? Because residue is a consequence. Airway invasion more so reports for penetration, which we also know occurs in healthy individuals. And then again, that's telling us an outcome, not really targeting what was contributing to that airway invasion occurring. And then even respiratory swallow coordination. And so that kind of, or in coordination, excuse me. And so that really piqued my interest then about that we need further assessment into how these patients are swallowing is it different among the OSA phenotypes? And then does it respond differently to treatment? Who are going to be those treatment responders? Because I think each of us that see patients clinically for dysphagia, we know there's not an all blanket approach to all of our patients. And sometimes we bat our head and we're like, why is this not working for you? It worked with my other patient that has like this similar, you know, pathophysiology or the same, you know, disease condition that we know is contributing to dysphagia. And so we have to think about, well, maybe there's these phenotypes that are occurring or these, um, and then and then understanding how that may influence what we're um, seeing. And so Emma, do you want to talk about the phenotypes? Because that's really kind of stemming from the lab you were in. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think OSA is, is, you know, this kind of almost blanket term. It's, it's you know, there's different what they call phenotypes or pathophysiological traits within OSA. So, you know, 
according to, to the models that have been done and, and, you know, the work that's been done to enhance understanding of OSA, they basically um, believe that all patients have some level of anatomical impairment or, you know, are predisposed at some level to anatomical abnormality in the upper airway to varying degrees. Um, and there's kind of we understand that there's three other types of um, phenotypes or traits that contribute to OSA pathophysiology, so that airway narrowing and collapse. And the first one is what they call muscle responsiveness. So, you know, do the muscles respond, do the muscles in the upper airway respond appropriately um, when that airway narrowing and collapse is occurring? Um, in healthy individuals, when that airway narrowing and collapse occurs, the muscles kind of kick into action and maintain patency of the upper airway. But for some reason in patients with obstructive sleep apnea who have poor muscle responsiveness, that that doesn't happen. So the muscles just don't respond as we'd expect them to respond. The other um, aspect is what we call arousal threshold. So patients with obstructive sleep apnea seem to wake up really, really easily, or some patients seem to wake up really, really easily um, to those air events of airway narrowing and collapse during sleep. Um, so they don't kind of stay asleep. They wake up so quickly. So they go into this cycle of, you know, falling asleep, having an airway narrowing or collapse event, and then they wake up really easily. So it's really disruptive to their sleep. And the last kind of trait or phenotype is called loop gain, where they kind of have this really unstable ventilatory response to airway narrowing and collapse. So they almost are taking these huge inhalations, you know, after those events. So their breathing is really unstable throughout the night. So, you know, that's a very simplified um, view of those three traits. They're, they're quite complex and, and how we measure that and record that is quite complex. But roughly those three things um, are what the researchers believe can contribute to this airway narrowing collapse. So someone might have, you know, poor muscle responsiveness. Other people might have this really unstable breathing throughout the night. So people have different components of these traits. But I think it's really interesting. I became quite interested in the, the muscle responsiveness cohort um, because, you know, if we think about the pathophysiology and the anatomical airway that's impaired in patients with OSA, it's, it's really the same um, muscles and the same structures that we use for swallowing. Um, so I became interested in that, that kind of cohort of patients in terms of you know, why are those muscles not working or, you know, why are they not kicking into action? And, and especially during sleep, you know, the, the added um, complexity of this is these patients are asleep. They're not awake. So it's slightly different to what we see in, in a wake patient when we're assessing their upper airway, you know, so that is something to bear in mind. There seems to be something about sleep as well, that that triggers this, um, pathophysiology. They don't have airway narrowing and collapse walking around during the day. So that, that is something to consider. But also what, what I find really interesting is that, you know, when these patients are having repeated episodes a hundred times an hour. So if you think about that, they're sleeping for eight hours, it could be 800 times this is happening during the night, which, you know, blows my mind sometimes. The trauma to the upper airway that that's causing, I think, is something as speech pathologists we need to consider or be aware of. Or, you know, as Kondraya said, if we're not investigating or excluding these patients, let's say from research studies or not maybe asking these questions in a clinical exam, 
these may be things that are contributing to some of the impairments that we see um, when we assess speech or swallowing. So I think that that's a really interesting thing that I don't think I ever thought um, in my clinical practice beforehand. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot to explore in these patients. I think, you know, I think Ankita's paper in Sleep and Breathing was a really game changing article for me. You know, I came across this paper on my on my search. It came into alerts, and you know, I think this really opened the. I think it really kind of changed the field in terms of looking at this relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and dysphagia. Um, you know, and as Kendra said, there's a huge range of, you know, I think, what is it, 16 to 78% the range um, of dysphagia in patients with OSA. And I think that really speaks to, you know, OSA can be caused or associated with patients who have stroke or neurological disorders. It's really prevalent in patients with um, neurodegenerative disorders like MS or uh, spinal cord injury as well. So I think there's potentially this crossover between diseases or, um, you know, we see patients for swallowing disorders in those populations, but also they present with OSA. So there's this kind of unknown area of, you know, what's kind of, what's contributing to what or, or our understanding of this. So, you know, I think that's, yeah, something that needs to be explored in a little bit more detail. Um, but Ankita's paper really yeah, highlighted that this this is an issue. And I think historically, maybe in the sleep medical field, OSA has been an under-recognized um, disease or disorder um, or disorder in, in this population. Um, I think it's really interesting that some of the treatments for obstructive sleep apnea involve really extensive surgery in the upper airway, removing parts of the tongue, removing parts of the soft palate, um, you know, really extensive surgeries to prevent airway narrowing and collapse during the night. And these surgeries aren't always effective in patients. Um, you know, they range in effectiveness. I think it's around 50%. Um, so they're not always very effective, but I don't think there's understanding of the potential effects as well on, on speech and swallowing post-surgery. So yes, I think speech pathologists just play a huge role in, in this population in general and probably an under-recognized role to, to date. Yeah. And you have to think about because um, and often there's going to be a lot of stuff interrelated, right? Because we talked about that one of the causes of OSA that's recognized is um, a larger BMI. Well, also with that, now you have an increase in hypertension, stroke, arrhythmias, reflux, et cetera. And so all those are playing a role. So if you have OSA, you're at increased risk of hypertension, increased risk of stroke, increased risk of pneumonia. And so our, you know, our ears tend, tend to perk up for that reflex again. And then all of those in themselves also have dysphagia as a common symptom. So you get really complex and convoluted about what's contributing what. But you have to think, you know, uh, Emma started hitting on like, okay, well, why would there be dysphagia in OSA? Why are we seeing a prelance as high as 80%? And she talked about, you know, that the pharynx is a shared conduit, right, between how we breathe and then how we swallow. And it's also important for, you know, that serves as a resonator for when we're speaking. And so if you're altering those 
the, the pharynx itself, right? So snoring is causing those vibrations. Um, so that's repeated trauma. You can have inflammation that's occurring. You have this intermittent hypoxia, which is what Emma was talking about up to 100 times a night. Well, you know, oxygen's really important for our cells, right? And so is that doing damage? Now, so now you have all this occurring in the background. So maybe you can potentially compensate, but over time, how does that influence when you do have these other things that then happen? You have a stroke, right? You have reflux that starts happening. And so are things just piling up? And Emma's exactly right with, with regards to treatment. You know, CPAP is typically, you know, first line of defense. But, I mean, they can, those surgeries, they kind of have tiers of where they might try this first and then they can start doing, you know, they're moving your, your mandible. They're moving your tongue let alone in the in the pre and post literature that's out there on these interventions on impacting swallowing are really missing or very limited in what they're actually looking at swallowing. And so when you think about management OSA, what is so interesting is, yeah, if you type in like CaliTree OSA, you're going to find a lot of articles, but they're all related to sleep outcomes, right? Nobody's looking at the swallowing outcomes. In fact, that we have a small pipe, uh, we have a small grant that is going to actually look at EMST as a treatment for OSA. Now, EMST is already recognized as a potentially effective treatment in OSA, but if you look at any study, it's only looking at sleep outcomes, right? The patients feel better, they feel more rested, or the fact that their um, uh, OSA severity hasn't significantly improved, et cetera. But not a single study, at least not that we're aware of, because trust me, we looked, talked about how it might impact swelling. Well, we know EMST is used in several patient populations, right? So then we had to start thinking about, okay, well, but why would EMST be potentially appropriate for this particular population, because we're talking about those pharyngeal muscle groups. We're talking about, you know, superhyoid musculature, um, extrinsic lingual muscles like the genioglossus, you know, and putting that in a position where it's not contributing to that airway collapse. And so that's why EMST kind of makes sense in theory about why that would, why we'd postulate why that may be effective treatment, not just improving OSA, but we also know those are really important muscles that we use for swallowing as well. And so, um, and so not only is it potentially maintaining upper airway patency when they're sleeping, but maybe it plays a role as well in improving their swallowing function. So that is like fresh off the grant press. So we are working with, you know, trying to get IRB approved. And so hopefully stay tuned and um, we can get you guys the results of that study, you know, in a couple of years. Um, but is it there was anything... Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything anecdotally you guys found, you know, that, that led you to maybe this hypothesis that the MST would help to improve? Well, I mean, do you want to, is it the Brazil group that? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, there's a growing, you know, emerging literature on the effects of upper airway muscle training for patients with sleep apnea. And, you know, there's really growing interest in, in that area. Um, so, you know, there's been numerous studies published to show that upper airway muscle training, kind of similar to what we'd use for patients with swallowing disorders, you know, similar kind of oral motor treatments have been shown to be effective 
in reducing the severity of airway narrowing and collapse in patients with sleep apnea. I think the the difficult and kind of area that we're missing with this kind of literature is that we don't understand why those exercises improve obstructive sleep apnea. So it seems like when, you know, you give patients some exercises that work those muscles in the upper airway, something happens that reduces the amount of times their airway is narrowing and collapsing during the night. But we don't really understand why. Um, you know, as Kondraya said, EMST has been shown to be effective. Um, a range of different, you know, there was a paper published that singing is effective. Different wind instruments can be effective. But I think our understanding of why that is, is lacking. You know, is it what's happening in the muscles? How are they changing? What are the patho, you know, what are the, the physiological changes that are occurring to stop the airway narrowing and collapsing? And I think, you know, um, there has been some research to show that patients with obstructive sleep apnea, their muscles aren't weak. You know, they don't have weakness in their muscles. Actually, their muscles in the upper airway are really strong, you know, when they looked at the tongue muscle, the tongue muscle can generate actually a lot of force in these patients. And probably because their airway is getting such a workout every night, you know, their, their muscles are sometimes in overdrive, but their muscles are not historically weak. But some evidence suggests that the muscles might lack endurance. Um, so, you know, they can generate a huge force, but they can't really sustain that force for very long. Um, so there may be some hints around you know, whether upper airway muscle training is enhancing muscle endurance and um, is it doing something completely different? Is EMST actually enhancing their, you know, respiration, their breathing and uh, their, their breathing muscles? And um, there could be a range of different things that's contributing to reducing the severity of OSA that we really don't understand yet. There's just a lot of evidence to suggest that this is effective. Um, but I think that's really interesting because it really highlights, you know, when we understand this a little bit better, a potential role for speech language pathologists to play in, you know, the rehabilitation of OSA in general. And, you know, then as well, potentially reducing additional impairments like dysphagia that these patients may, may have. So I think for me, it really highlights, you know, an area that we may eventually emerge into us as a discipline and um, so that that maybe we're not currently in i know in there's a few groups as kendraya mentioned in brazil where they have speech language pathologists heavily involved in in osa treatments and osa interventions so that's really exciting and, and really interesting but i think we need to better understand how these treatments are changing the upper airway and what exactly they're doing and um, you know what are the underlying mechanisms of these um, effects that we're seeing um, to really know who these treatments are most appropriate for what kind of patients with osa are likely to benefit from muscle training or emst is are they the patients for example with poor muscle responsiveness or are they the patients who have that really unstable breathing we don't really know that yet and we don't really know that um, we haven't managed to study that in detail so i think with kendrea's um, upcoming studies, I think we might be able to shed some light on on some of those unanswered questions. So, yeah, it's a it's an exciting area, and I think you know because we know very little about it, and um, there's so much to do and so much to learn. Yeah, yeah, so fascinating. I, I 
I love doing these episodes because it's, you know, it's like you learn something new and something mind blowing. And then it's like, oh my gosh, something totally different to rock this phase of world. So. Mm. And I think what what's really interesting as well as, you know, I've, you know, been a speech pathologist for many years and have kind of jumped into the sleep world. And I think what's really interesting is how they assess the upper airway is quite different to how we historically do it in our patients. Um, you know, for example, they use a lot of intramuscular EMG in patients with obstructive sleep apnea, which I think is fascinating. They also have like tiny little catheters that they put into the nose to assess airway narrowing and collapse during the night. So I think, you know, there's huge potential for these two disciplines to work closely together and to kind of borrow techniques off each other. You know, I've learned so much about how to bet how we could potentially better assess the upper airway um, and complement some of the the methods that we have at the moment. So there's lots of learning, I think, within the two disciplines. Um, that's really exciting and really advantageous to, to kind of have a hand in each each area. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we've done, you know, we've moved some great links and very specific populations where this kind of interdisciplinary approach to patient management, you know, thinking about, you know, speech pathologists being involved prior to patients with head and neck cancers undergoing, you know, treatment, right? So, and then working with them through the treatment and even after treatment, or, you know, my previous institution thinking about working with them or just making sure that they're aware if they're going to go say an anterior neck surgery, that they may have a potential to influence voice and swallowing, et cetera. But we haven't really done that in OSA. And so, um, and so th- this kind of that we can take a better role in advocating, one, our, our involvement as part of an interdisciplinary approach to OSA management, but also making sure that patients are really informed about when they're, when they're talking about these pretty invasive surgical procedures and how that can influence, you know, speech and swallowing issues and making sure that we're getting those baseline measures before and then making sure that we're following up with them after. And so, and what was interesting is, you know, we talked, we talked about, yeah, there's these, these uh, accumulating evidence coming out of Brazil and, and one of their most recent publications was they were actually able to do fees on patients before they started CPAP and actually showed improvement and some swallowing measures post CPAP use. Um, now, others would argue that potentially prolonged CPAP use may be detrimental to swallowing because of the, of the, of the pressures to the pharynx over, through the night. And so I would love to see that here because there's definitely some geographic differences. And I think we highlighted that in the study under review that we hope to be published soon is um, last summer, you know, pandemic world, right? The only research you could do was surveys. I'm sure all of us took a lot of surveys in 2020. But if you took our survey, we really, really appreciate it um, because we got over 800 responses, I think, in like six weeks. Um, Definitely one of the largest dysphagia surveys I know I've ever seen um, but that was really amazing and not the majority of it was it was from America but just trying to get really a basic understanding of are speech pathologists aware what OSA is could they define it do they know what the symptoms are do they know how it can potentially impact swallowing are patients with OSA on their caseload 
And then, you know, what kind of education did you receive? did you receive about OSA and the, and the results, I don't think were too surprising, but I think it speaks to the fact that th- there's some work to be done about educating, not just the field of speech pathology, but also our physicians or sleep physicians, nurses, et cetera, about the role that we have for these patients. Um, so Emma, did you want to discuss some of the, the kind of key findings that we found from the survey study? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, as Kondraya said, we decided to take on this um, survey study to really look at, you know, it was really based on a clinical question. Do patients with or do speech pathologists have patients with OSA in their caseload? And kind of if they do, what do they know about OSA? You know, so we we got responses from 822 clinicians worldwide, which was you know, an amazing response. I think we only took a speech pathologists who completed the whole survey, but I think about over a thousand uh, attempted the survey or or got some way part some part way through it. Um, and really, what we found, like you know, the key findings from that study was knowledge was limited. You know, their knowledge of OSA was really limited, which is you know unsurprising because I know OSA wasn't included in my uh, undergraduate training or you know postgraduate training. I've never never been given any education on OSA until I went to seek it myself. So really, when we gave them a questionnaire or the knowledge component of the questionnaire, really the the mean correct number of responses was about 55%. So um, overall knowledge was quite limited. That ranged from about 40% or 14% to 86%. So, you know, some clinicians had relatively good knowledge, many didn't. And over, when we, when we looked at that, over half of speech pathologists said they had patients with OSA on their caseload. Um, 51% actually had patients with OSA on their caseload. And what I found really surprising is of those 72% had between one and five patients per month, which, I mean, I wasn't expecting. I think that was much higher than, than I really expected. And again, from those a group of clinicians who had patients with OSA, about 60% were being referred for dysphagous services. So it kind of painted a bit of a picture for us that, you know, speech pathologists seem to be seeing patients with OSA um, and their knowledge of that group or cohort or the pathophysiology of OSA is really limited. I think what we what we don't know from that survey is how they came to see those patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Were they seeing those patients, you know, on the back of a patient having a stroke or were they seeing them, them in the context of a neurodegenerative disorder or something else? So we're not sure if they were seeing those patients directly for for their OSA or as part of another condition. And I know anecdotally, when, when I was working clinically um, in acute stroke units, you know, I was often asked by patients whether some of my treatments would, in, would improve their OSA. And at the time, OSA wasn't on my radar at all. So I really didn't have an answer to that question for them. Um, it was like, maybe, maybe not. But I think this is this is a really interesting interesting area now and um yeah so we really don't know why why they came to see those patients with OSA but I think that the findings of that study really highlight you know that as speech pathologists we may need you know clinical guidelines on this and educational strategies to enhance our knowledge of 
of this group of group of patients. So I think it's, yeah, it's a really important study and, and something that will guide further research, definitely, but maybe the development of, of clinical practice guidelines and more educational strategies for speech pathologists who are potentially seeing patients uh, with OSA and, and don't really know what to do. So yes, we hope it's under review. So we hope we'll have this paper published soon. We're, we're quite excited about it. You can tell we're really passionate about this topic. I know. I love it. I love it, though. I, I mean, how exciting is our field when when new things like this come up? Because it's just like a whole new, whole new world. So, well, and, and I and I do have to get. I mean, we said our name a couple of times, but I I do want to give due credit to my doc student um, and Kita because it was really so. She is a doctoral candidate in my lab um, about three and a half years in, and. Wow. During her first semester, um, she comes to me and just expresses this interest in swallowing and OSA. And I was, and I, I'm pretty sure the first thing I said to her was, "Why?" <laughs> and probably not so nice of a tone. I imagine just be uh, like. Who cares? Why is that? And and it was stemming from her clinical experience, right? And that's what the, that's the beautiful thing about still being an active clinician and always has been, and still and then identifying these questions that come out of what we're doing in clinical practice, mm-hmm. but then sneaking to the lab and then trying to answer them, right? It's like the best of both worlds. And, and it really did. It was stemming from her own clinical, clinical experiences at a hospital in India. And, and she recognized that this was something that was worthy of investigating. Yeah. That, you know, one billion people worldwide and that number continues to increase. And that's a scary thing. There was a report, I think it was American Academy of Sleep Medicine. They estimate in the U.S. alone, $100 billion a year on OSA. On OSA. And so, you know, she, she was... She was driving this from a clinical curiosity based on her clinical experiences. And then hence the systematic review, you know, so I told her, I said, well, prove it, like show me that this is worthy of investigating. And and then that's where she went with her systematic review. And when she, and so one, I was kind of surprised that she even found that many articles because I was yeah, like, oh my God, yeah. other people actually care about this apparently. And but then I was like, oh, there's there's still so much we don't know. Like, even with this, I mean, we couldn't even do a meta-analysis. There's no way we could combine or aggregate the data because things were so different. Methods were different. Like I said, the operational definitions for how they defined dysphagia was different. Um, their instrumental methods were, were different. The protocols were different. And I was like, yeah, this is, now this is interesting. And then the next thing I know, I get this, you know, email from Australia about, hey, read your publication. I was like, somebody read our publication in OSA and dysphagia? So she was the one of maybe two, maybe my mom read it, but, and, and, and I was like, okay, so it is not just us that are interested in this. And the fact that she had unique experience being in a sleep institute as a speech pathologist, and she was doing these sleep studies and, and going through when she was coming off night shifts and we would have our meetings about well, where can we go from here? And like I said, it's really exciting. I think it, it can always be frustrating as a clinician being like, 
okay, there's no answer. <laughs> but it's, it's really exciting on the research and we're like, there is no answer. Like, let's try to find it and, and let's contribute. So then when we do go back into the clinic, we can immediately translate that information. So fascinating. I, and I don't, I don't know if there's anything to this, but, and I don't know who told, I'm not sure where I heard it, but a few years back, I think I was at some fees course or something and they were almost comparing the like effects of reflux in the pharynx to very similar of OSA. And I was like, okay, well that could be, you know, I, I guess that would make sense if, you know, the airway is being compromised during the night. But I think what's so fascinating now is, okay, if that is something, I think finding the information to be able to treat it is something else, which I think is really fascinating that you guys are working on as well. So I don't know if you had, have you guys ever heard of that? Yeah, there's, well, dysphagia, co-occurrence of reflux with dysphagia and OSA has been estimated to be up to about 20%, but reflux is definitely recognized in OSA. And you have to think about because of those, if you had this increased respiratory effort, right, as Emma was talking about in in response to that kind of uh, poor ventilation, that's going to have, that's going to change your intrathoracic pressure. So if you had these kind of excessive negative pressures occurring, then reflux can occur in response. Well, we also know that reflux itself, because of the content of the the, the gastric content and, what, and what's in there can then cause those inflammatory changes, right? So you think about the patients that have like restricted PES opening, UES opening, because of the reflux is actually making its way all the way up to the UES and causing those inflammatory changes, causing that trauma. So now you have things like strictures occurring. Well, guess what? All that is is further narrowing. Then you have patients where reflux is actually going through the UES, potentially up into the fair. So we tend to call that laryngopharyngeal reflux, which I remember Dr. Coyle back in my training at Pitt never understood that because he was like, but it's coming from the gastric. So it really should be like gastropharyngolaryngum reflux. And that was just, that's too many letters and a really long name. So, but so now we're talking about going through the UES into the pharynx, potentially spilling over into the larynx and, and the airway. And, and so again, so that, yes, that's potentially contributing to further narrowing of a system that's already narrowing at night because of the OSA. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, reflux is a really interesting thing as well. It's common in patients with OSA. um, And as we know, can, can, you know, cause changes in in the upper airway, you know, and I think it's, it's really interesting. There was a recent publication to show that, you know, patients, numerous studies have showed this, but patients with OSA can, can actually swallow. They seem to swallow so much during the night. Something that I've become really interested in is this nocturne, this concept of nocturnal swallowing. Historically, you know, there's been this view that you don't, you don't swallow in your sleep. Um, you know, you can't, it's, you don't swallow when you're in sleep. And the concept is you, the brain tends to wake up momentarily and then you elicit a swallow and and then you kind of go back to sleep but it seems like patients who have obstructive sleep apnea seem to have a lot of this you know swallowing glottic closure a lot of these upper airway activity during the night and which you know may or may not be caused by reflux 
aspiration. Don't think we really know what, what's causing it throughout the night. But I think there is this relationship between OSA and reflux, which is quite interesting for us as clinicians as well. Um, and I think I was also really interested in sensory changes that can occur with OSA, which you know may or may not occur with as a result of re- reflux in, in certain cases. Um, and there is good evidence to show that there is sensory impairments or sensory changes in the upper airway. I I have a systematic review that's just under review at the moment as well, showing that, you know, these upper airway sensory impairments are quite extensive in patients with OSA. So I think that that really ties into the relationship. Is it reflux? Is it something else? So definitely reflux is a big thing that's is is a problem in these patients um, that I think can really cause a number of different factors um, during the night. You know, for example, I touched on earlier, sometimes these patients wake up really easily throughout the night. So, you know, if they're waking up to swallow, whether that's swallowing reflux or you know, aspiration of something that's coming from from their nose, you know, or or aspiration of reflux, whatever they're waking up to swallow, um, you know, that's really disrupting their sleep throughout the night as well. Um, so I think a really interesting unexplored area is, as well is why are these patients swallowing so much during the night? You know, we don't mm-hmm. swallow, healthy people don't swallow during the night or, or they don't swallow at all during sleep, but we really don't swallow during the night. So why are patients with OSA swallowing so much during the night is something that we really don't know. So that's another, I think, another question and a completely different can of worms. But yeah, something that's quite interesting. Well, and I think, so we have uh, another paper under, it's under review and it was about Using, using measures, patientreported.com. So we did EAT-10 and the reflux symptom index. And it was 63 patients, but only 14% had EAT-10 scores of three or above, suggesting, you know, hey, you might need to look at this a little further. And only 11% had the scores of RSI. Um, and, and what was interesting was thinking about, um, so that, I mean, that's pretty it was lower yeah, than what yeah. we were expecting, right? Because that's yeah, lower yeah. than the prevalence. But if all those things that we just talked about, about why they may have dysphagia, if you do have these afferent changes happening to the pharynx, then maybe these patient-reported outcomes may not be appropriate as kind of like a screener yeah. um, in order to identify patients that maybe we may need to do something a little bit more. Because we didn't do instrumentals on these on these patients, these were just a part of their packet. So they got, they were immediately diagnosed with OSA. They got these patient reported outcomes. And then what Ankita did is went back into their charts and trying to see, is there something predictive them about those patients that did report? Or is there something separating those that had the abnormal scores versus something that didn't? And couldn't find anything about the 810. And it really was age and the sleep severity related to the reflux scores. And so, again, it's that role then of, okay, so we need to explore this further, okay, using instrumentals and then comparing that with what they're reporting. Um, Because one of the things that the most common E10 symptoms, for example, were those that we patients with reflux also complain about, food sticks and throat coughing, you know, those are also the same exact same symptoms that they were reporting on the reflux symptom index, you know, excessive frequent throat clearing, I have indigestion, I feel like food's coming up. 
And so really digging into then how does that relate their, their overt symptoms that they're reporting? How does that relate to what we're actually seeing um, using instrumentation? And then how does that contribute then to those kind of different, again, OSA phenotypes and, and then how are they going to respond to these treatments? A lot, a lot to explore and we're excited to be, hopefully, hopefully we can keep getting funding to um, help play a role in answering that as well as others. Like, like we said, we're not the only ones for sure. And so, and so let us know if you as a listener interested in helping us gain some data and help us try to answer some of these questions. Yeah, and I think, you know, as just a final take home, I think for for clinicians and and researchers, you know, ask your patients if they have OSA. Um, You know, I think in research studies that we're doing on, let's say, normative data or, you know, I think it's a really important thing to include, um, given that we know it's an upper airway respiratory disorder. So I think, you know, it's asking your participants or patients, if they have OSA, is one way that we can better understand this. And, and equally as clinicians, you know, in the hospital, your stroke patients, neuro patients, um, spinal cord injury patients, asking if they have OSA as well will help us better understand the kind of relationship with these with these two disorders, uh, OSA and dysphagia. Yeah. Awesome. This is so fascinating, you guys. Thank you so much for sharing this. I think I think we covered everything, but any any final thoughts? I think so. No, I think okay. all right, awesome. Well we will um, we'll make sure we get if if you guys don't mind, we'll get your contact information in the show notes. So if anybody is interested in this work and, and has any patient data that they'd like to contribute, I'm sure that they would love to hear it. So thank you so much to the both of you. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk about um, you know, our works and our interests and hopefully gauge some interest in the audience to help contribute. Yeah. So, yeah, thank yeah. you. I just love it as a clinician because it's, you know, the next time you see a patient, it's like now another thing that goes up like, oh, it might be this. It might be that that's contributing. So awesome. All right. Well, and thank you, Emma, for joining us from across the world. Yeah, it's been it's been nice to tune in from from Oz and have have all those multiple time zones. I know you guys are in the evening. I, I'm just starting my day and you guys are finishing your day. So, but no, the, the joys of, of Zoom and I think yeah, yeah, it's, right. really, it's been great for that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Great. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.